Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The interview of the day on international economics and trade and with China, John Farrell, without question, Catherine Mann, long ago of Brandeis and other points in OECD and now darkening the door at Fortress Corbat. 2004, Peterson Institute, breaking up is hard to do, global codependency, collective action, and the challenges of global adjustment, light years out in front of others on this China-U.S. matter Catherine Mann. John? A world-class economist that really didn't need much of an introduction at all. Citigroup Global <laughs> Chief Economist. Good morning to you, Catherine. Thank you. Great to see you. Great. Let's walk through it. That codependency. Yeah. Have we given enough thought to the fallout of two of the largest economies in the world essentially going at it with each other? I think the answer is no. Um, I think the stock market has uh, gyrated a little bit, but but has not fully appreciated the potential for a divorce. Um, and uh, that certainly is something that um, the administration would like to see is a, is a divorce. I mean, uh, we could get closer together. I mean, the, the objectives of market access, which was the original uh, design of the Section 301 case, you know, uh, pro- protecting intellectual property, creating a level playing field for foreign firms in, in China in order to be able to access the market and, and serve the, uh, the citizens and the firms there, uh, that, would, that would tighten the relationship. But that's not the direction that we currently uh, appear to be going in. Uh, divorce seems to be the direction that, that we're going in. That might be the direction we're going in, in your view. Is that the objective, though, Catherine? Because that's a different, that's a different scenario entirely. The objective, as you point out, mm. was to get market access. Do right. you really believe that the objective now is to have a divorce? Well, I think that uh, we've we've seen a, a number of different um, communications that suggest that if uh, firms want to avoid having to pay the tariffs, that that they should. Um move their production back to the United States. Uh, that That is a nice thing to say. It's probably unrealistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead, uh, there will be some supply chains that go uh, to other countries, uh, not not necessarily to the United States and probably not to the United States. So it's it's kind of a, you, d- you divorce uh, China and you take up with, I don't know, Vietnam or something like that. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the strategy. 224 pages decades ago, Catherine Mann is a trade deficit sustainable. Maybe some of it's dated. (laughs) Chapter three is must read, including at the White House. Has U.S. comparative advantage changed? And on page 30, where does comparative advantage come from? Lecture the president right now, a wise one. Uh, so comparative advantage comes from uh, productivity growth. It comes from uh, educated workers. It comes from how you use your resources. And, and that is uh, not, none of that is enhanced with trade wars. It is an intellectual leap going back to Ricardo Smith mm. yeah. of tearing down the certitude of Thomas Munn and others hundreds of years ago. I mean, John Farrow's ancestors lived Thomas Munn, England. Are we going back to that? 
No, I don't think we're going to go back to um, autarky. That's uh, Autarky is the word that the us trade economists use when you produce and consume everything at home. Which is the, what the tweet uh, said this morning. John, right. continue. Um, so, I mean, you don't, you don't, you know, I mean, if you're a producer, you want market access to more markets to, to sell your stuff. If you're a consumer, you want the variety that comes from, you know, what you can buy that doesn't come from your own country. Um, so, and of course, producing, you know, producing things abroad, it's cheaper. So that's good as well from a pocketbook standpoint. So there are a lot of reasons why, you know, we think trade is good and, and uh, uh, it should be enhanced. Um, we know, of course, that there are adjustment issues as well. And, and that's been kind of the centerpiece of a lot of concerns. But uh, closing the door to, to, to trade, uh, closing the door to um, uh, created markets abroad yeah. or to, to buy things from abroad, that doesn't enhance your capacity of your economy to deliver on, on what your citizens want. Well, let's want. talk about comparative advantage, though, because it's not that clear cut. Let's take the chip industry, for instance. Yeah. The Chinese import a load of semis mm -hmm. from U.S. companies. The Chinese would essentially like to end that. And the yeah. way they're looking to end that is to beef up these industries by subsidizing them. Mm -hmm. This administration has a problem with that. That's not about comparative advantage. That's about skewing the results to your own advantage. It is not about a level playing field. The Chinese are ultimately doing the same thing, aren't they, Catherine? Well, so uh, comparative advantage is not immutable. It doesn't just come from the weather or from you know the whether you have re, you know minerals in the ground. Comparative advantage is something that can be built. Um, as I say, educated workers—that's something that you build. Um, a you know superior um, technologies; those are something that you build. So, so you know, subsidization is something that has is the you know the Chinese are pretty obvious about that uh, right now, but. It's not like it's the only um, country that does that. Um, going back to the to the day with uh, was it you know what's what's more important, computer chips or potato chips? That goes back to the 1980s, um, and, yeah. and the U.S. allowed um, U.S. Uh, chip producers back in the day to uh, create a cartel. Uh, Semitech, if you remember back then, um, and that was in order to promote U.S. semiconductor industry. So, I mean, we did it too. Uh, they're doing it, and so uh, it's it's not new under the sun. Chapter six is the trade deficit sustainable? Is the external deficit caused by unfair trade practices? What did you do? Write this chapter for young Trump. <laughs> So, I mean, you know, it's uh, pe people ask that question back then. I mean, I think that we should remember that that the issues that are being um, displayed in the in the current environment with uh, with uh, the U.S. and China, these right. are not new issues. These are absolutely not new issues. What is new is that the size of the two countries involved and that it is it is taking place uh, right. after a period of time when there's been so much integration between the two countries. There's so much interesting, um, supply interesting. chain relationship. And that right. that means take, bear, taking right. that apart uh, is much more costly yeah. than, than in, in 20, 40 years she, ago. Mrs. Farrell from Coventry emails in and she says, what's it going to do for the dollar? Also, she doesn't care about all this mumbo jumbo. Right, right. She just wants to know what's it going to do for the dollar. Well, in the short run, all this uncertainty associated with uh, policy changes, trade wars and so forth, people tend to um, go uh, to the dollar. 
Uh, it's uh, the place that you go for uh, safe haven. Um, but there are other kind of currencies that have started to be a little bit more attractive as well, which is which is the yen. So by and large, we're looking at short-term improvements or, or a dollar appreciation. But then, you know, then you, the buyer's remorse sets in and the cost of disentangling your value chains looks bad. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's and that and there's a big trade deficit, uh, trade deficit. There's a big um, fiscal budget deficit that the U.S. currently has, larger than uh, most countries would have at this point in their business cycle. And uh, you will have to be issuing uh, treasury securities. And I think there's some question marks about that. So, Catherine, final question for you. How you model the pass through from mm. tariffs that could be on everything and they could be higher too right. through to final prices and plug in those FX assumptions for right. me as well, because I think that's important. Just do that for us briefly. Well, so a lot of people do focus on the uh, for, the foreign currency translation. So a, a product, you know, in theory, a product is priced in yen uh, or in yuan, RMB, and then you adjust the price to translate it into dollars. And so they say, oh, well, if the yuan depreciates by 10%, it offsets 10%. That's actually way too simplistic, because in fact, all that is invoiced in dollars to start with. So there's much less of a dollar translation effect than most people think. Catherine Mann, really, really interesting, thoughtful stuff. Great to catch up with you this morning. Yeah. Catherine Mann, Citigroup Global Chief Economist, Tom. Really thoughtful stuff and some great analysis yeah. over the last couple of days on this story. The big issue, the president sounding optimistic about the chances of a deal, saying it would become apparent in about three or four weeks whether trade talks with China were going to be successful. Planning to meet with his Chinese counterpart, the president said he has a feeling it's going to be very successful. Here in New York to discuss, I'm pleased to say, is Jens Nordvig, Exante Data founder and CEO. Good morning to you, Jens. Good morning. The concept of the Trump put market-sensitive policy preferences. Are we seeing that being activated just a little bit in the last 24 hours? Yeah, I think we saw uh, obviously a very big uh, market reaction starting last uh, week and accelerating uh, very much on Monday. And then uh, the rhetoric from from Trump changed a little bit. Uh, I I thought the key sentence really yesterday was this thing about uh, the tariffs on the remaining 300 billion uh, was not set in stone, like that was something that was still to be decided. So I thought that was the opening. Uh, that was the most reason, um, uh, most important reason why we're starting to rally back a little bit in these risk assets that have been hammered. There's a belief that we have these series of automatic stabilizers that will kick in. These policy preferences will kick in. The likes of China, the sheep put, that if growth and the risks around growth increase too much, they'll deliver stimulus. That if the market backs off too much, the president will back away mm-hmm. from market negative policy preferences. For instance, the Fed put, the power put, we've talked about that so much. All of these three things, Jens, do you believe that those three things could be activated? What do you think the risks are, the constraints around the deployment of those initiatives? Yeah, so <laughs> I think uh, the, 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 the problem with that narrative is that a lot of them have already been deployed. And then there's places like the Eurozone where they don't really have much left. Yeah. Uh, so obviously the Chinese have, have stimulated already. Uh, the Fed has already done their pivot. Doesn't mean they couldn't cut aggressively and surprise, but they've done a, a fair bit. 
So I think really the the most important part of what you're describing is some kind of softening of the stance in the trade negotiation itself. That's something that can be sort of pulled out of the hat if needed, if, if the market started to tank, and that will be important to markets, certainly in the short term. So those are things I'm watching. Until then, we've got to think about how the FX market adjusts as well. I hear a lot of analysis around the tariff impact, which doesn't account for the FX market adjusting. Just how much will the renminbi adjust and to what degree and how much tolerance do the Chinese have to allow a weaker Chinese currency? Yeah, so uh, the Chinese authorities really have a challenge on their hands here, right? Because if they wanted to fully adjust to the tariff that is now spiking up 25% on a, on, on a large proportion of their goods, we would need to see a big move, like maybe more than 10%. On the other hand, they've signaled from a psychological perspective that they don't really want to have it above seven. That was a signal they sent in the second half of last year. And I think that's a signal they're sending again where they're fixing. So every day they come in the morning, they set essentially a starting level. And that has been set low signal that they don't want it to be weaker than it already is. So they're sort of stuck between, okay, what will be good for their exporters? And what do they need to keep the situation calm? both in relation to keeping the trade negotiation going, not to do as anything that looks offensive to Mnuchin and Trump and so forth, but also to avoid capital flight. Um, and that's a really big, big balancing act. Yeah, and the money question here is not only renminbi to seven and the vector that we see well out over two standard deviations, but dollar dynamics as well. If we assume now blended dollar is range bound, should we look at a blended dollar, Bloomberg dollar index or DXY index, or do we have to disaggregate to Asia DXY, that bundled Pacific Rim index, or do we aggregate to the major pairs? What do we do in terms of judging scaling stronger dollar? Yeah, no, I, I always, always look at it in a, a number of buckets, right? So you want to look at the sort of uh, low-yield bucket, which is the yen and the euro and the Swiss franc. Yeah, what is that bucket euro doing? hasn't moved at all. No, and uh, obviously the yen is strong and the Swiss franc has, has been getting uh, strong yeah. as well. And then you have like a, a bucket that is the commodity bucket, which is very important uh, with uh, Australia and Canada and so forth. And then you have the, the surrounding countries. The adjacent around. bucket to China. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which buckets should Secretary Mnuchin look at? So I think from his perspective, clearly he wants to look at the bilateral crosses for the people he's negotiating with. But he also needs to think about, okay, what are the crosses that's going to really impact the, well, I'm the, sure he's looking the U.S. At that. economy? Yeah, what broadly. do you think, Naki Stocky? What, what crosses what crosses the <laughs> president needs, looking at Well, today? he needs to look at Dollar Mex. He needs to look at Dollar Canada. <laughs> really? He needs to look at Dollar Korea. Uh, so there's probably a handful that are really important. Jens, we know the administration has looked at the euro before. It's been interesting over the last week that the euro has been so resilient. I remember a conversation you and I had a number of months ago, and we were talking about the prospect of going into another risk-off scenario and how the FX market would respond. And yep. we'd have this very counterintuitive move where the euro just wouldn't sell off in that environment. Yep. So walk me through what's been happening here and why the euro is starting to take on the character to some degree of the Japanese yen. Yeah, yeah, the the... <clears throat> There's definitely an element of that. So it, it makes sense in the context of, of the, the rate environment that you have in the Eurozone. Uh, it's not that the yield curve is totally flat like you have in Japan, but there's very limited move for European interest rates to move further. So that means when global interest rates drop, 
uh, actually the rate differential moves in the euro's favor. So that's sort of the simple explanation for what's <coughs> going on. From a flow perspective, what's happening is that European investors are incredibly active in emerging market trades around the world. And when you have some severe risk aversion, <coughs> you get unwinding of those. And we saw it very clearly last week that, that the specific day when EM was trading the worst with Thursday, with some big moves in, in key emerging market currencies, and the euro actually had a pretty strong rally just as that happened. The Mexican peso being one of them. So we're unwinding the carry trade to some degree, Jens, and I'm just wondering how long it takes to flush that out and before the euro takes on what we would expect, which is a euro to be weaker in this kind of environment. Yeah, so I think it depends on whether you have like a short-term hedging dynamics where there's some big real money guys that put some FX hedge in their portfolio or whether it's really like a more wholesale getting out of every everything on a more structural basis. So I think we've seen the hedging elements take place and now these EM uh, right. portfolio managers have to decide, okay, do they sell the securities too? Uh, I don't think we're quite there yet. We have enjoyed five, even six tweets from the president this morning. These are Elizabethan tweets back to Mercantile, uh, England of another time in place. And one of the great thrusts here, Jens, is the idea from the president that, quote, we can make a deal with China tomorrow before their companies start leaving so as not to lose USA business. Explain this trade war if it's with a totalitarian regime led by a communist party. I mean, it's not even Elizabethan dynamics, is it? It's uh, clearly a, a totally different situation yeah. than in a democracy where there's sort of different voices that can have their own opinions. Uh, one thing that I always thought was uh, sort of tricky about the U.S.-China dynamic versus the U.S. versus Mexico dynamic was that it, there's in the U.S. a reasonable amount of political backing for a, a tough stance versus China. So that means that the U.S. kind of has a fighting chance, but can they really measure up with a, you can call it a totalitarian regime, but a regime where it, it's certainly more government directed? That's a big question yeah. mark. So the pains, I think, on the sort of political coherence versus the actual economic okay. pain. This is wonderful. Jens Nordic, thank you so much, and you'll continue with us here uh, this morning. This is a really important conversation, synthesizing all... Right now, we're going to jump to the equity markets, but also with a touch to technology. Mark Lehman at JMP Securities is encyclopedic on the heritage and history of his Silicon Valley and also equity markets. Mark, let me go to the general markets right now uh, with futures up 22. Can you acquire shares this morning or are you on the sidelines? Well, I think you're going to have a necessary bounce back from a week of down drafts and a week of bad news. I think this is just the beginning, though. We're not going to have a lot of news as it relates to tariffs through the next six weeks. And looking for a catalyst for the market between now and then, now that earnings are behind us, is going to be hard to find. Um, so this is going to be a kind of a wishy-washy period, I think, for some time. And I expected a bounce. I'm not sure this is the bounce to be bought um, for the next leg up for the market so far. Wedbush out with a note saying that Apple iPhone production costs could rise 2 to 3%. Mark, how are you thinking about the prospect of higher costs, how it gets absorbed, whether it's in the margin or just a full pass-through to the consumer? 
Jonathan, I think it's going to be a little bit of both. I think you're going to see some companies able to absorb it, and you're going to see some people um, probably pass it on to the consumer. But I think this is going to put a wet blanket on a lot of demand here. Um, and I think we've seen um, bits of this over time in some markets where they've been able to absorb it. I just think we're running out of legs to do that. And I think that's the reason why you have more pessimism in the tech stocks and more pessimism in the international community. And I, again, expect this to not go away quickly. We've had some self-inflicted um, damage by the president that he's been quickly able to reverse, and this is not going to be one of those, unfortunately. Well, walk me through the demand in China, because I didn't get convincing guidance from the big semis, the big chip makers in the last couple of weeks about China for the year ahead, even before this escalation, Mark. So what's your base case for demand? I think you're going to see uh, just a damper, dampening right now, I think, globally. I think there's just too much skittishness as it relates to uh, pricing, and there's too much skittishness as it relates to what is going on politically. Um, and I think China probably has the most to lose, but I think politically they have the most um, the ability probably to stay there the longest. And I think the president here um, has less to lose, but I think he has more to lose politically. It's kind of an interesting juxtaposition between the two. I just think um, that's a bad situation for a resolution, and that will yeah. just dampen things. And that's a bad situation, I think, for the market. Mark, just with the time left that we've got with you, I have to ask, why was Uber and Lyft mispriced by intelligence, well-meaning bankers? Uh, it's a great. It's the sixty-four thousand dollars question. Um, I think. Well, the fee was had, bigger uh, than that, but continue. <laughs> yes, the optimism obviously was high. Um, I think there was enough demand, both institutionally, uh, which we will talk about and we will see very shortly by what institutions participated and what did not. Um, I think the retail hype, if you will, was great, um, but the reality is. And I think the most important thing is some of the later investors, both publicly as well as the last private rounds, are well underwater, well underwater. Um, Lyft is approaching 50% lower than the first print, and it reminds people that individual investors are sometimes the least likely um, who should be participating well, in some of these deals. And that's unfortunate, really Mark, unfortunate. Mark Lehman, thank you. We look to speak to you again Thanks, soon. Mark. Mr. Lehman is with JMP Securities with decades of experience uh, on left coast uh, equity and technology uh, markets. Dana Telsey with us. Dana, to John's point, what portion of stores is from China? I mean, like Big Box or Bergdorf Goodman, what portions from China? We Hi, thank you for having me today. Um, we've just did a big piece in terms of whether it's retail, whether it's apparel, what percentage of all goods comes from China. And frankly, it could be at least 25 to 30 percent of all goods may come in some form or way from China. So it's significant. And what we're seeing is companies are taking three different actions in order to alleviate some of the pressure. And none of this happens overnight. It happens over time. So planning is key. And whether it's diversifying where your goods come from, whether it's negotiating with the manufacturers who you do business with in order for them to eat some of the cost. And last, and mostly what companies do not want to do, is raise prices to the end consumer. So there is a lot of work going on behind the scenes in order yeah. to manage the exposure to China. And it's been going on for a while, 
but it doesn't happen overnight. So Dana, I'm really interested in the success rate they might be having with negotiating with manufacturers in China. Do those manufacturers have any margin to absorb those higher costs? I think sometimes, yes, they do. We've been hearing again and again from a lot of the branded vendors and from a lot of the retailers that factories over in China do not want to lose the business that they currently have. Interesting. So they're willing to work with the tariffs and eat some of the cost and share some of those burdens with the vendors or with the retailers. What it all means in the numbers is first going to settle out, but this is certainly a continuing work in progress of the highest magnitude. Does it affect retail shares now, or do you sort of have to wait to see the math, the Excel spreadsheets, what the sell side uh, believes and such? You look at yesterday. The screen was all red. Basically, it's act now, think later, and yes, it is affecting retail stock prices now. It's affecting consumer wow. stock prices now because the end game of it, when is it going to impact yeah. sales is in the future. Well, let's just take Macy's as an iconic big brand, 25 to 21 in a cup of coffee. Technically, folks, it's an ugly chart. Dana Telsey, what is your target on Macy's? I mean, I think Macy's are going to release their numbers tomorrow. Jeff Gannett has a host of solid initiatives in place in order to reinvigorate sales and reinvent, reinvent the business. I think that the first quarter was a tough quarter, and you have a lot of solid assets. Can you drive top-line growth remains the question. I think that's what everyone will be focused on. So, Dana, looking at the retail universe right now, you've gone through those three options for retailers on how they deal with the higher tariffs. Let's say there are some companies that won't have the success you're talking about with the manufacturers on the ground in China. Let's say the worst case happens, let's just explore that, that you have to pass it all through to the final consumer. Which part of retail has the highest consumer price tolerance where they do have that kind of flexibility to have some pass through without damaging demand too much? It's high end. It's those consumers that are the wealthiest and that's the high end. Keep in mind that most luxury goods are not made in China. You have the mid-tier who has, who has exposure, and they can't afford it, and they will definitely be watching what they spend those dollars on. Yeah. But the high end has the greatest level of resistance to price increases. Dana, every listener, coast to coast and worldwide, is observing empty storefront space. And everybody's got their story on this. I don't want to bore people with it. But how does it adjust? Does the real estate prices come down for retail? Is the stuff permanently empty? What does Dana Telsey think the five-year plan or the 10-year plan is on all the empty square footage John and I see when we go home in the Bentley? A couple, very nice. A couple of things. I think number one is the fact that when you have top quality locations, top quality space, there's always a value to it. And basically, it's the value that is brought there by the complementary tenants. What you and I both see, whether it's on, in urban areas like yeah. what we're seeing here on Fifth Avenue, we're seeing new usages develop. We're seeing a focus on services. We're seeing restaurants. We're seeing spas. We're seeing activities where services are definitely warranted. And that's where you're seeing consumers gather. In this world today where everyone is looking down at their phone yeah. and the first thing you wake up in the morning you see is your mobile phone and the last thing before you go to bed is your mobile phone. How do you get people to network and communicate? That's why you're seeing more retail brands, whether it's right. incorporate restaurants, whether it's incorporate other categories. Yeah. We're seeing a changing of the guard. And I think that good space where there is 
large density of population always has value. Investing in that space is essential to yeah. make it new again. Dana Telsey, uh, 20 seconds. I need a spring refresh, I'm told by Bergdorf. What is the must thing I'm buying this summer for boots. various and sundry? Boots? Not boots. I mean, you can, you can get some boots. You're going to get some sandals. You're going to get some denim jeans. I think yeah. there's a host of things these days. Dana Telsey, go away. I can see Dana Telsey. Uh, Telsey. I can see that. Oh, you can you see like me. Jimmy Chew or Gucci? Gucci boots? Like a two-inch heel. Yeah. Dana Telsey, <laughs> the Telsey Advisor Group. Love, <laughs> love having Dana Telsey on. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.